Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 13. This morning I'll be reading verses 44 through 46. Please give your attention to God's word. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Just a few minutes ago, we asked you to say together or read together Psalm 23, which is undoubtedly one of the best known and best loved passages in Scripture. And as you think about why we love that passage so much, I think it's safe to say it's because it is such a clear and beautiful and poetic vision of what kingdom life is like. Kingdom life in this world and the promise of kingdom life in the world to come. As I was reading that passage this week, I was reminded a number of years ago I came across Something that David Pallison wrote, David Pallison is uh, the director for Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, and he wrote uh, what he called uh, anti-Psalm 23, the anti-Psalm 23. This is how it goes. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken down, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want, but life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. He intends for us as we hear that, to reflect on there before the grace of God go any of us. 
That's what life is outside of the kingdom, whether people realize it or not. But Psalm 23 is our hope. Psalm 23 is life in the kingdom. Psalm 23 is life with the good shepherd. Psalm 23 is life under the lordship of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, there's a long list of great men and women of faith from the Old Testament. And there's one point in that chapter where it describes those men and women of faith in this way. It says, they are those who desire a better country, a heavenly one. What a great description of people of faith even today. We desire a better country, a heavenly one. We desire, we long for the life that Psalm 23 describes. Our eyes have been opened and we see a reality that you can't see with your physical eyes. And our hearts have been changed and we have a desire for things that we don't yet fully experience. A couple of weeks ago, we began looking at uh, a parable from a couple of parables from Matthew 13. Matthew 13 are meant to be stories or pictures that make us think about life in the kingdom, life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the great king. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast and the dough and talked about how the kingdom advances in surprising and unexpected ways and how it permeates all of the world, all of the culture and transforms all of the world and the culture. Well, today I want to look at a couple of the final parables here in Matthew 13, two very short ones that we just read. And the point of these two little stories is that the kingdom of God, that our eyes have been opened to and that our hearts have been given to us to desire, that the kingdom of God is so far more valuable than anything else in our lives, that obtaining it in all of its fullness should be to the desire and the passion that drives us. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom. What does that look like? That's what these two little stories point us to. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like treasure. It's like treasure. And so this morning I'd like you to ask yourselves, is it my treasure? Is it what drives my life is to see the kingdom, to obtain the kingdom in all of its fullness. There are three things that, if the kingdom of Christ is like treasure, then there's three things that that implies. First of all, we are all treasure seekers. All of us. Even people outside of the kingdom are treasure seekers. And that's what these stories illustrate. The first parable Jesus says that the kingdom or the person seeking the kingdom is like a man digging in a field owned by somebody else. And as he's digging in that field, he's surprised to find a valuable treasure. He's digging and he brings up maybe a box or a jar. And in that box or jar, there's coins, there's gold, there's silver, there's some great treasure. And he's overjoyed. To find this treasure. Back then they didn't have banks. 
They didn't even have safes. If you had something really valuable you wanted to put away and keep from being stolen or or if you wanted to uh, keep it from being raided when, when the, the enemy armies would come through a territory, they would just go through houses raiding houses and taking anything of value. If you wanted to keep something secure, one of the best ways to do that would be to go out and bury it someplace where only you knew where it was. Well, the problem is if that's your main way of saving things, if that's your main way of keeping things secure, sometimes what would happen is that the person would die and they didn't have any heirs and nobody else knew it was there. That person had buried it there. So it wasn't uncommon to be out digging around and find some buried treasure. Matter of fact, back in those days, a lot of folk tales, a lot of popular stories were about people digging and finding buried treasure because it wasn't that uncommon of a thing. Even today, we still have stories about pirates' treasure as this this story about what, you know, this enticing idea that somehow you could suddenly come upon, unexpectedly come upon something of great value. In the second parable that Jesus told, he talks about a merchant. And literally, the word there in the original Greek isn't a retailer, not somebody out there like on a, in the marketplace selling something in the marketplace, but a wholesaler is what the word meant. It's somebody who's the middleman, somebody who's out there finding something of great value and then taking it to the retailer so that they can sell it. And what this wholesaler is looking for, it says, is a fine pearls. As a matter of fact, he's looking for the best of the best, the best pearl that he can find. And if you are a wholesaler looking for pearls in the first century, you're going to have to go a long ways. The only pearls in that day came from either the Persian Gulf or from off the coast of India and the Indian Ocean. And so they would have to travel far. It was a dangerous occupation. They had to face all kinds of hardship. But this pearl merchant was bound to find the best pearl. And so what Jesus is illustrating here is that this is what people are like. People who are, whose eyes are opened, whose hearts are changed. This is what it's like. You are all searching for something. Some people, like in the first story, are searching for the wrong thing and suddenly find something of great value. The man digging in the field wasn't looking for something of great treasure. We don't know what he was digging for. If he didn't own the field, there's a good likelihood that he was either a renter or maybe a a, a day laborer who had been sent in the field to plow the field to prepare it for planting or something. But he didn't own the field, so we don't know what he was digging for. But he wasn't looking for great treasure, but all of a sudden there it was. And so Jesus, by that man, is illustrating the kind of person who is searching but not looking for the treasure of the kingdom, but suddenly finds it. And I think, if you want to think of a person in Scripture like that, think of the Apostle Paul. Paul was on the road to Damascus trying to destroy the church, trying to imprison Christians, and he found the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Suddenly found the kingdom. Suddenly found the greatest value. You think also the Samaritan woman. When she went to the well, all she was looking for was a jug of water. But there she met Jesus Christ and found her Lord and her Messiah. 
But Jesus is saying with the second story that some people are looking for the kingdom. They are looking for Christ, even if they don't know him by name. And it's a long, diligent, dangerous search sometimes. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm always fascinated by the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. It says that when he met Philip, he was coming from Jerusalem. He had been there to worship. What was an Ethiopian eunuch doing in Jerusalem worshiping? Somehow he had come into contact with truth and it had brought him to the temple in Jerusalem seeking the true God, but yet he didn't yet know him. He was seeking and as he's riding in the chariot back home, he's reading Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 53 of all chapters. And Philip is there to meet him on the road by God's providence. And he finds what he'd been searching for. I don't know how long the Ethiopian eunuch had been searching, but obviously he'd been searching for a while for the truth. And he'd been searching in the right place. And finally he finds him. And that's the way it is. We're all searching And the important point that Jesus is trying to get across is that once your eyes are open, once you see the great value of Christ the King and and of His kingdom, it is going to be your greatest desire to have it, to possess it, to obtain it, the kingdom of God. We are born into this world as pleasure seekers or as treasure hunters. And that drive, that desire to have pleasure is something that everyone has. Only those whose eyes are opened have their desires directed to the true treasure, though. But everyone seeks treasure. Everyone seeks pleasure. John Piper, in his book Desiring God, quotes Pascal. This is what Pascal says. All men seek happiness. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Everyone is seeking pleasure. Some people go to war because they want the pleasure that they believe war will bring them. Other people avoid war because they want to live in pleasure and avoid the pain of war. And he says, even those who commit suicide are doing so because they are so hopeless and so despairing of finding pleasure in this life that they're going to end this life in the hope that even nothingness would be a pleasure compared to what they're going through. But what Pascal is saying is that every motive of every action that you carry out is the desire for pleasure or, if I can translate it, treasure. We're driven by that. We're driven by our passions. The Stoics, that was a very popular Greek philosophy in the day of Jesus and the apostles. The Stoics in Greece taught that enlightenment comes by logic and rationality and in order to get there you have to to repress your emotions, repress your passions, and devote yourself to pure reason. But that's not Christianity. Christianity does not, no matter what many people may think, Christianity does not teach us to repress our passions, 
deny our passions. That's not what Christianity teaches us to do. What it does is it, by the grace, it teaches us that by the grace of God, you can have your passions transformed. You can exchange your passions for earthly treasure for your passions for eternal treasure. You can exchange lesser pleasures for far greater pleasures. You are a treasure seeker. You were born into this world as a treasure seeker. The real question is, what treasure do you seek? It's not wrong to passionately go after what you want most in life. The question is, what is it that you want most in life? If the kingdom of God is your treasure... It is the Lord himself who becomes the source of your joy and pleasure in life. And if the Lord gives you that new heart so that you desire him and his kingdom, then not only are you allowed, but it becomes your great passion in life to pursue him and his kingdom as your great treasure. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, You have made me to know the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's the heart of a born again believer. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, he gives you new desires and then he rejoices to fulfill them. But there's a catch in these two brief little stories, that as you seek after heavenly treasure, you must be willing to give up earthly treasure. You can't seek both worldly and kingdom treasures. That's the point of these stories. In the first parable, when the man discovered the the treasure buried in the field, he goes and sells everything he has in order to buy that field. In the second parable, when that pearl merchant finds that one great pearl of great value, the one he'd been looking for all his life, it says he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys it. The man who was digging in the field, the field didn't belong to him. He finds this great treasure and he has no legal right to it. And so he goes and buys the field. To think of it in today's terms, what if you were renting a house, you're living in this house that you've rented, and you have a loose floorboard, and and you pick up that floorboard, you try to repair it, and you look underneath, and there's a $20 million diamond underneath the floorboard. Legally, you would have no right to that. But what would you do? It makes sense. Jesus is saying, what would anybody do? You go out, you find the man man you're renting the house from, you say, hey, I'll give you $200,000 for this house. He says, sure, I'll take $200,000 for the house. It's yours. Now you go home and get your $20 million diamond and you're far better off. It's the same idea. He goes and sells everything he has in order to buy the field. And so from a world's point of view, he gave up everything. What a fool. He gave up everything he had just to buy a field. But in that field, he has the great treasure that's far beyond anything he could have imagined. The pearl merchant wouldn't have hesitated to sell his entire inventory in order to obtain the one pearl that's worth far more than his entire inventory put together. 
You see, this is what Jesus is getting at when he says to his disciples, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. He's not calling you to a life of utter, stark nothingness. Giving up everything that you treasure, everything you value, just for the the value of going without. That's not what he's calling you to. Jesus says in this, the same message, he gives it to us in so many different ways. He says you must lose your life in order to come to him. He says you must deny yourself. He says you must die to self. But this is what he's talking about. He's talking about an incredible exchange. He's saying, I'm here to give you something of infinite value. Something that makes everything you possess pale in comparison. But the one thing I ask of you is you need to stop living for these earthly treasures. You need to stop finding your security in these earthly things. You need to come to me. You need to make me the center of your life. You need to come under my lordship. And when you do, I'll give you the kingdom. Sometimes that literally means giving up things in this world. Sometimes and more often it means just stop treasuring the things in this world. Kind of reminds me of uh, at the end of the Civil War, the kind of uh, mass hysteria that was going on in the South. At the beginning of the war, they in the South, they really had every intention of setting up a separate country from the North. And so in order to have a separate country, they had to have their own currency. And so they had... Confederate dollars or graybacks, they called them, and they issued this currency, but it didn't have any uh, literal um, monetary, ba- I mean, it didn't have any uh, gold or silver backing it up. It was just a promissory note, really. It was saying that when the South wins the war, this currency will be of great value to you. Well, as it became obvious toward the end of the war that the South was going to lose the war, anybody who had any foresight at sight at all started to go out and start spending their Confederate dollars or exchanging them for Northern dollars because they knew that once the war was ended and the Confederacy was lost, those graybacks would be absolutely worthless, and they were. Well, at least not they were then. Now they're worth a lot of money. But back then, after the war, they were totally worthless. And so often, isn't that what... It's like for us who have had our eyes opened and our hearts changed and we're part of the kingdom of God. We understand that what the world values and what is valuable here on earth is going to be worthless when all is consumed by the final flames of God's judgment. And so isn't that really what discipleship is about, is exchanging this worthless currency for that which is of eternal value, of using earthly resources to invest in an eternal kingdom. There was a man who came to Jesus one day, and he wanted to know what was missing in his life. He was a good Jewish man. He was wealthy and prosperous in this world and was a good uh, religious guy. And he said, I'm still lacking something. What do I lack, Jesus? And so Jesus asked him, well, how are you doing with those Ten Commandments? He said, I'm keeping them. I've kept them all. But Jesus knew his heart. And he went right to the issue of where his sin was. And he said to them, said to him, go and sell all that you possess. 
He didn't require that of all of his disciples when they came to him and became part of his kingdom. But this young man put his trust and his confidence and and his treasure was in what he owned in this world. And so Jesus said, you've got to be willing to give that up. You've got to stop trusting in that. You've got to stop finding your security in that. You've got to stop finding your identity in that. And you need to come to me. And the man went away sadly, it says, because he had great wealth. Because his treasure was in this life. He was invested here in this world. As Jesus would later say, you can't love both God and money. You can't love both God and money. If you love money, you've got to give it up. You've got to seek the kingdom first. But then there is good news at the end of these little stories. Because as we've been alluding to all along, kingdom treasure is infinitely more valuable than earthly treasure. You see, when Jesus talks about dying to self and he talks about denying yourself, he's not really talking about self-denial, is he? He's not really talking about sacrifice. Because in the story, it says that the first man, the man who finds the treasure in the field, it says in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. The pearl merchant joyously sells his entire inventory in order to gain the one pearl that is far worth far more than the others. You are driven by joy. You're driven by passion. You're driven by a deep desire for the things that Christ offers. That's why Jesus says, "He whoever loses his life for my sake, for my sake will find it. You give up what is ultimately worthless for that which is infinitely valuable. Only an idiot would not make that exchange. Now, he's not saying that we buy the kingdom of God. It's not, he's not saying that we do anything. It's not talking about salvation by works. It's saying that once your eyes are opened by grace, you will joyfully throw aside anything that will keep you from pursuing the greater treasure of the kingdom. It's interesting, after that little interchange between Jesus and the rich young ruler, when he walks away, rejecting the treasures of the kingdom of God and holding on to his earthly treasures, it's interesting, there's a little interaction between Peter and Jesus that's given in Matthew 19. Let me read that part to you. In verse 27, Peter said to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, I know your probably initial reaction was probably my first reaction when I read that passage. Man, what a selfish guy Peter was. You know, all he cares about is what he gets out of this. Boy, I bet you Jesus is really going to let him have it for being so selfish and thinking about only about what he gets out of the, out of the, uh, the exchange. But that's not what Jesus does. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will have followed me. You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. He doesn't rebuke him for saying what's in it for me. He says, you're not going to believe what's in it for you. Yeah, you've given up 
family, you've given up possessions, you've given up a career. But look at what you get in the kingdom of God, and you'll have it in increasing measure for all eternity. When I think of that pearl, actually on my desk I have a little statue I picked up in a church in Scotland of a man sitting, kind of sitting on the ground with a pearl. There's a, there's a fake pearl, it's not real, so don't try to steal it. There's a fake pearl sitting on his lap and he's just sitting there contemplating the great pearl and it sits on my desk and it's just a reminder to me that the kingdom of God is this great treasure. And when you think about that great pearl, you know, what's, what's the... if, if Psalm, the anti-Psalm and the Psalm 23, you know, what's the anti-type of the pearl? And what comes to my mind is J.R. Tolkien's story of the, the Lord of the Rings. And there's always been a lot of Christians especially like to debate out what does the ring represent? And to me, the ring, whatever specifically Tolkien had in mind when he made that the center of those stories, to me it represents the anti-type of the pearl that Jesus is talking about in this story. The ring, I think, represents giving yourself over to the desires for this world as the ultimate good. It's the lust, the passion of the flesh. It's really the seduction of sin itself. And what happens to Gollum in that story? As he gives himself over to his love, his passion for that ring, if that's what it represents as sin, what happens to Gollum? He becomes increasingly this violent, selfish, pathetic animal. And that's what the love of this world will do. It makes you like that. It destroys you. The love of money and all that it provides will enslave you and ultimately destroy you. But what if God gives you a new heart? What if he opens your eyes to see the value of the great pearl of the kingdom, the king and his kingdom? The beauty of that is, is that as you strive to obtain it, you become more like the king. You become righteous and you grow in that righteousness the closer you come to him. We're so foolish to hang on to money and possessions and fame and wealth and health and relationships that keep us from the kingdom. Jesus is offering us treasures that are far, far better and they're eternal. Don't be like Esau, who gave in to his momentary lusts for a bowl of stew and gave up his birthright. We as Americans feel that we have a right to earthly comfort and prosperity. But Jesus calls us to be willing to give that up for the kingdom. Because the kingdom is what is eternally of value. But he doesn't ask us to make that sacrifice for his benefit. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's asking us to exchange for our benefit, for our eternal benefit, what is of lesser value for what is supremely valuable. And that's himself and his kingdom. Paul found that on the road to Damascus when he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He found that great pearl. He found that great treasure. And he talks about that process. He talks about that exchange of giving up what he had 
created of great value in his own life, his religious reputation, his religious education, his religious position, his notoriety, his wealth in this world, he he talks about giving that all up for the sake of Christ in that beautiful passage in Philippians 3. Let me read it to you. Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ." that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. See, Paul was driven by passion. Deep, deep desire given to him by grace by his Lord to obtain the kingdom and to be close to the king. And that's what the Christian life is like. Jim Elliott, who died violently on the mission field in Ecuador, is known for this great quote, and it fits really well here. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. What's your treasure? Is your treasure on earth or is it in heaven? Does it show in your life? next few weeks, we're going to be talking about our time, our money, our talents, whatever resources the Lord has given us in this earthly life. And we're going to be looking at scripture passages like this one that ask us to evaluate what are we doing with those things? How are we using them? More importantly this morning, how do we view them? Because you're never going to give them up until you first see them the way the Lord sees them. And that's what these two stories are given to us to illustrate. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As Connell mentioned, we were on an officer's retreat the last couple days, Friday night and Saturday. And on Friday night, I, uh, when we got together on Friday night, I was wearing uh, my jacket, my fall jacket. And it's a Penn State jacket. My daughter got it for me uh, before we moved here. And uh, somebody commented on the fact, oh, I like your jacket. Pointed out that I was wearing a Penn State jacket. Now, that's not unusual. Everybody around here lives in Penn State stuff all the time. I suppose the reason they pointed it out is because I'm a relative newcomer. I've only been here eight months, and already I have a Penn State jacket. So that's why it was worth pointing out. Well, I got up the next morning, and I reached in the closet to put on what I had brought to wear the next day, and I realized that it was a Penn State T-shirt, or it's Penn State sweatshirt. And I actually hesitated to put it on because somebody had pointed out the night before that I was somewhat illegitimately wearing a Penn State jacket. So what if I go into the meetings on Saturday morning wearing a Penn State sweatshirt? And you wouldn't, you know, you know it five minutes after I walked into the main room. So I said, oh yeah, I can't believe you're wearing a Penn State sweatshirt. And so I thought, you know, in one sense, Everybody's right. You know, you guys, you live here, you, you're, you know, you have a right to wear the gear. I'm not a Penn State alumni. I don't have children that are Penn State alumni. And I, you know, I, I, I'm not even from State College. But I love Penn State University. 
I love State College as a community. And I love this church. I have given my heart to this area. So, I'm going to buy the swag. I'm going to wear the logo. Because this is where my heart is. And that's the way we need to think about the kingdom of God. Our identity is in the kingdom. Our king is Jesus Christ. He's risen and he's coming again. And our value, where we want to invest our time, our talent, our money, is in the things that are going to advance that kingdom. If God has given you by his sovereign grace, if he's given you that heart, then I'm here to give you the good news is that when you invest in that kingdom, you're the one who benefits. You gain the value for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises. It's incredible to us that not only do we get salvation when we come to Christ, but we get the kingdom. We're so undeserving. And so it's with great joy that we sing your praises, for you are so good to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.